Well, it's an honor to be with you all this morning, and it's awesome uh, that you are, we're doing communion today as well, and uh, you guys have been going through an Advent series, and I listened to, I listened to all of JT's sermon, first sermon he ever gave, that was awesome. His dad's a pastor, so it doesn't surprise me that he was able to preach pretty well. My dad a, was a pilot, so I, I like to imagine that, you know, if they came on the, the, the telecom, is, he, is there a pilot on board? You know, I'd be like, my dad was a pilot. You know, it's like, I could probably fly that plane. Um, but you had hope, peace, joy, and then today we're going to be talking about love. And I'm not sure that I'm going to give as good a sermon as what you guys have heard so far in the series, but I know that I've got the best topic because there is nothing better than love, right? I mean, the Beatles, right? They said, all you need is love. All you need is love. Am I right? And of course, you had Miracle Max, right? What did Miracle Max say in The Princess Bride? What is the greatest cause, the greatest cause that there is? That there is no greater cause than true love, right? Except for maybe an MLT, a mutton, lettuce, and tomato, you know, where the mutton is nice and lean and the tomato is crispy. Love is the greatest possible topic that we have. And as we read through that passage, you might have noticed that the word love did not appear <laughs> in our passage for today. But the reason that I chose that is because the greatest act of love in our cosmic history was the sacrifice of Jesus coming into the world and going to the cross on our behalf. The love of God was proven through the cross and through his resurrection on our behalf. And so it's, an, it's such an awesome thing that we get to talk about love, talk about the sacrifice, and then also participate in communion as we end this service to remember what Jesus has done for us. And my hope this morning is that if you're feeling the heaviness of the brokenness of the world, you're feeling the heaviness and the regret and the heaviness of your own sin in your life, that you will be encouraged today that you will be filled up and reminded again of how much God loves you. And then we see also in this passage, not only do we see an opportunity to respond to that love and worship, but we also have an opportunity to respond to him in some practical things and practical steps because of his love, because of the sacrifice that he's given to us, how we should respond. It was the greatest act in history of love. He who knew, knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. And before we get into the Hebrews passage, I just really want to establish and make it very clear that this was an act of love. So let me read some very familiar passages to you all. You've heard these passages many times. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You know, theologians like to carve up all the different attributes of God. And one of those attributes is love. I, in my opinion, I believe that love is the defining characteristic of God. And all other attributes flow out of his love. Because of his love, Jesus responded to solve the problem of our sin. God sent his son, John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, 
that someone lay down his life for his friends. This is Jesus talking to his disciples the night before he goes to the cross. He's given them the picture of this is what love is. And he tells them also in that discourse that I want you to love one another as I've loved you. This is a new kind of new command I'm giving you. As I've loved you. In other words, self-sacrificing. There's no greater love than he that would lay down his lo- himself for his friends. And then Paul pushes that even a little further to the point where, I'm, okay, I'm not sure I can even follow you, Jesus, in this one. Okay, I get this idea of laying down my life for people that I like, people that I love. But the Apostle Paul in Romans 5, he says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. You know, parents, we wouldn't hesitate to lay our lives down for our children. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the greatest act of love in history. And of course, John the Baptist, what did he say when he saw Jesus coming? He said, behold, the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God. You know, in our, in our Gentile, modern Christian world, we're, we think Lamb of God is just one of his titles. But when John the Baptist says that about Jesus, he's saying, this is the sacrifice who has come from God himself. The sacrifice and God's love go right together. It is the greatest love in cosmic history. And my hope today, again, is that we would appreciate his love more than anything. And like the Apostle Paul prayed in Ephesians 4, that we would have strength to comprehend the breadth, the length, the depth, the height of God's love, to fully understand and appreciate that and to be reminded of that. Let's walk through the passage Hebrews chapter 10, starting at verse 1. Hebrews chapter 10, starting at verse 1. The first thing that happens is he sets up for us the problem. There's this problem. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, and i got to assume that whoever wrote the Hebrews had that picture and the idea that of Plato's, have you guys heard Plato's um, cave allegory? Um, you know, Plato came well before this was written and it would have been in, in popular, you know, thought, a powerful idea. And Plato's cave allegory was this idea that there, you've got these guys that are in a cave and they spent their entire life in that cave, trapped in the cave. They've never been out of the cave. And light shines in through the opening of the cave, and they see on the wall shadows. They'll see like an animal walk by. They see a person walk by. But they're just looking at a shadow. They're not looking at uh, the actual thing. But because they grew up in the cave, all they see is the, the shadow. They assume that's a dog. That's a person. You know, and there's a lot more to the story But I think that's what he's referencing here. In other words, these old sacrifices that God gave to the nation of Israel were just a shadow. They aren't the real thing. They aren't the reality, the ultimate reality of what is needed. That's the kind of the picture he's giving right at the beginning. He says that it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. In other words, the shadow is not as good as the real thing. 
The shadow can't accomplish what the real thing can accomplish. In this case, making perfect, paying for the sin. In other words, accomplishing what the sacrifice needs to accomplish. It doesn't do that. It's just a shadow of the real thing. He says, otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. In other words, you just have to keep doing it over and over and over. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. So when they go through this process every year, new pro- same process as we did last year, where they're being reminded, because we got to do the whole sacrifice again, that I am still a sinner. I am still a sinner. I am still a sinner. I am still separated from God. There is still a need for payment of my sin. I cannot be with God because of my sin. That's that reminder over and over and over. In verse 4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. It is impossible. There is no other activity that we do that takes away our sin. You know, and I I think one of the things, too, that that happens to us as Christians, and maybe some of you haven't put your faith in Christ, is that we think by doing certain things, you know, because of that, okay, I just keep having this nagging issue in my life of sin that I keep coming back to. Or because of that um, awful thing that I said to that person in my pride, man, I probably should say yes when Hank calls me up and asks me to volunteer. You know, or they need another person in the kids' ministry. Like It sounds like somebody went to solve that right now. It's like we don't do that because we're trying to make up for something that we've done. That doesn't work. It's not possible. It's like, oh, because I've been mean to that person, now I need to be nice to them. As if it's like this this scales thing, you know, where the scale of my sin is going down here, so I need to make sure I put some good things over here. It's impossible for any other act of sacrifice to solve the sin problem. He's making that very clear. And I think that the, the main thing that we should get from this first four verses of Hebrews, is that there is a chasm between us and God because of our sin outside of Christ. And we need to be reminded that this is a massive problem. I cannot be with God by any other means because of my sin. And so right at the very beginning of this passage, there's this tension. Okay, so how is this going to be solved? What are we going to do about that? We've been doing these sacrifices annually, every year, boom, 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 over and over and over. But it turns out that those are just a shadow of the reality of what really needs to happen. And then goes to verse 5 in the next part here. And I'm going to call this Jesus Steps Up. Jesus Steps Up. It says, consequently, when Christ came into the world, and this is why I chose this passage for Christmas. What... Does anybody know Jesus' last words? Anybody have those memorized? The very last words of Jesus on earth. Did I hear somebody mumbling it? Yes, no? Acts 1.8. I will be with you. Yep, that's the Matthew 28 version of the Great Commission. But yeah, exactly. You're right on track. In Acts 1.8, he says, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Those are the last words of Jesus. 
Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said. So now he's a fetus <laughs> when he came into the world. So is he saying this in utero? Is he saying this as he's coming down there? Is he saying this at the moment he steps out of the door of heaven? I don't know, but it's saying this is when he said these words we're about to read. At Christmas, that very first time when Jesus came, this is what he said. And he's quoting from Psalm 40. He says, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. I just think about that. This, you know, I think a lot of times as Christians, we, we think about, you know, the big announcement of Jesus coming, and we think about that baby, he's going to be on the throne, the king, and that's all looking into the future and all real and good. It should build hope, and, and it's just so incredible. But there is a cross and a death that he's got to go through first in order to get there. He came, I mean, this innocent little baby, and it's not, it's not just innocent because it's an ignorant person who has, doesn't know life. It's, it's perfect person in the holiest form has come to the world to be the sacrifices. Jesus is saying, I will step up and I will do what you desire, God, and I will achieve what you desire, in burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. And how many times do we see that throughout the Old Testament where God is upset at Israel because you're just doing all the church stuff, but you're not actually obeying me in your hearts and your minds, with your life, with your, with your giving, with your care for the poor, with all the things that I've called you to. You're doing the motions, going through the activities of religious action, but not doing what I want. I mean, it's just that constant problem that on our own, we are sinners. We cannot achieve the holy goal, the holy standard of God. And so Jesus says, I will do it. He says, then I said, behold, I have come to do your will. As it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And then in verses 8 and following, he expands on that. He says, And when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. The will of God was achieved through Jesus. And, and I know that we've said that in church over and over, and we, we talk about his holiness and the perfect perfection of Jesus, and we talk about our sin, going on Jesus, going to the cross, all those ideas, but we feel the burden of the standard of God's holiness, and we fall short, and we, we see that gap you know, between us and God and the sin, and we take a running jump. We do everything we can to get as far as we can, and Jesus said, hold up. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do what God wants to be done. I have come to do your will. Every single human to this point has failed. Every single person in this room has failed to do the will of God perfectly. But Jesus said, I will do it. Your will, I'm going to do it. I'm going to achieve what you want. 
He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. The will of God is that you would be sanctified. That means saved. That means perfected by God. Jesus is fulfilling the will of God. And I think oftentimes it's like I, I just, I constantly want to go back from just a faith in what he has done for me to a, I got to earn it. I got to do a little more. Man, I got to make up for that thing that I did that I failed in yesterday and be better today. I feel that constant pull back to me performing The will of God is that I be sanctified, and the will of God was achieved through Jesus. He did it. He did what I'm feeling this burden of, like, I got to do. He did it for me. A body that you prepared for me. You know, there's a, one of my favorite uh, Christmas carols is, what child is this? And, you know, you can hear, you know, this time of year, you hear secular music on the Christian stations. I always think it's funny. And, and you hear secular singers on, or Christian music on the secular radio stations. Do people listen to radio anyway? Is that, I don't know. Anyway, you know, there's all these old Christmas carols. There's like so many different verses. And there's verses that you forget about or they don't normally sing like in the secular or the Mariah Carey or the whoever the people are that hip to do it these days. You know, they don't sing these verse, verses, but listen to this verse from What Child Is This? It says, why lies he in such mean estate? And that's the old way of saying, why is the son of God as a baby lying in a manger? What, what, what's going on that, with that? Where ox and lamb are feeding? Good Christians fear, for sinners hear, the silent word is pleading. The word of God made flesh is pleading for us on our behalf. And then it says this, and this is probably why it's not sung in the popular versions you hear on the radio. Nails, spear shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. Hail, hail, the word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. He came to be the sacrifice for us. And that is the greatest act of love in cosmic history. Absolutely incredible. Jesus came to do the will of God, and he succeeded where we failed. Sounds like I got a little bit of a mic problem. How's that? There we go. I think my arm was on it right here, so it was bonking it. All right, let's see. Uh, so then he expands on that in verses 8 through 10. And then look at verse, sorry, verse 11. It says, And every uh, priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. Now he's contrasting the sacrifice, again, the, 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 um, the shadow version versus the real version. And look at all these, different, these differences that he says. The old way, those guys were there daily. Every day they're doing the sacrifices. Every year they're doing the sacrifices. Over and over and over and over and over. 
In Jesus, it's one time. There's no more sacrifice for sin. One time, he did it. It's done. And then the old way, he's saying it didn't do it. It wasn't enough. It doesn't make up for what's been done. It doesn't solve the injustice of sin. With Jesus, it's done. He did it. Completely solves the sin problem. And then I love the imagery of how the priest, it says the priest stands. See that? In verse 11, the priest stands daily. Jesus, he sat down. And that gives us this picture of he's done. There's no more to be done. You know, Jesus hung on the cross and he said, it is finished, finished, done, completed. You know, it reminds me a lot of times, it's like when I'm at home and, I mean, ladies, moms, you know that a mother's work is never done, right? And so sometimes I'll be there trying to help out and I'll just be milling around standing and trying to figure out how I'm going to fit in and help out or whatever. And it's always one of my favorite jokes is that I'm trying to figure out how to help and what to do. But as soon as I sit down, my wife's like, hey, could you... <laughs> Could you do this? And it's just, it's just a signal to her that, oh, he's available now to help me with something that's going on. And that's what's happened here, is Jesus is done. Our sin is finished. It is nailed to the cross and paid for. The greatest act in cosmic history of love was Jesus dying on the cross on our behalf, going to do what only he could do. And then verse 14, it says, For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And I just love the wording of that. A single offering, you have been perfected. Perfected is a big word. I mean, that you are, you have been in the past. You have been perfected for all time, those who are being sanctified. And theologians talk about this idea of progressive sanctification. In other words, over time, I'm becoming more and more Christ-like. That's that idea here in the sanctified. But you already are perfected because of that sacrifice. Anything and everything that you're doing today has nothing to do with your sin, Christian. Because that has been dealt with. Now he is working to sanctify you and to continue to save you. But you, it's, 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 it's so crazy to think about that it is done and it is being done. But it is completed, totally done, totally completed. And then in uh, verse 15, he's got this great section. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness for us, uh, for, us for after saying. And he quotes from... Uh, Jeremiah 31, which is the famous quotation in the Old Testament where God reveals this picture of the new covenant that's coming. And, and, and just as a sidebar, note that he's saying it's the Holy Spirit talking when it's the Word. Do you want to hear from God? You want to hear from the Holy Spirit, Christian? Get out your Bible and hear from God. Hear from the Holy Spirit speaking to you. He says, the Holy Spirit bears witness to us. The Holy Spirit has bared witness to you through Jeremiah 31. He quotes it. This is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts. I will write them on their minds. 
You will have everything that you need. God is going to give it to you. And this is talking about, I think, the future when we're fully sanctified, but it's also talking about today, how God works in and through us through his Holy Spirit. And then he adds, I will remember their sins no more, their lawless deeds no more. This is a promise from the Holy Spirit that Christian Through faith in Jesus Christ, through his power, he said, I'm I'm not counting your sins anymore. I've completely forgotten about those. Why why are you thinking about this scale thing where you need to do something extra for me or do something extra for people because of what you did yesterday or today or whatever? I already paid for that. I already paid for that. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any sin. Because of what Jesus did, God is completely pleased with who you are. And you don't do what's right in order to earn his favor. You do what's right because you have his favor. You don't do what's right in order to get his love. You follow and obey him because he loves you. Because my sin has been perfected. I was perfected through Jesus Christ on the cross. And I I think it's also interesting that you do continue to have this idea of sacrifice through the New Testament. You know, think about Romans 12 where it says, Therefore, in view of all of God's mercies, in other words, because of all that Jesus has done for you, Present your bodies as living sacrifices. This is your holy act of worship. You're to be a living sacrifice. But that's not a sacrifice for sins. It's a sacrifice of thanksgiving and love for God. So then in verse 19, we get to this. And actually, I've got the first point. You can put it up. And that was the whole section there getting to this idea His sacrifice proves that he loves you more than anyone, and he is worthy of our worship. He is absolutely worthy of our worship. And then we get in the second point, because of his sacrifice, I should draw near to him, hold the gospel tight, and intentionally minister to others in my church. Therefore, brothers, verse 19, Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he has opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. We've got all kinds of imagery calling the Jewish people back to all of the sacrifice. Because the holy place in the temple was not a place that anyone could go except for the high priest one time every single year. The normal Jewish person couldn't go into that that, that place. But now we're able to because the curtain has been torn, which is another thing that's just such an incredible idea of the the, uh, gospel. When Jesus died, that curtain tore from the top to the bottom, making it clear that God is saying, now through the death of Jesus, I can draw confidently into the presence of God. And that should be our response. Because of the sacrifice of love, I confidently go to him. I draw near to him. I'm trying to be with him, doing everything I can to know him more, to love him more, to have a better idea of who he is, to hear from him, to respond to him, to to abide with him, to walk in the spirit. 
all these ideas because I've been perfected by the sacrifice of Jesus. Because of his love, I can draw near to him with confidence. I don't have to worry about what I did. He paid for that. I don't have to hold back. I don't have to earn or you know, get back to what I need to do. I just am with him. I just love the, the picture in Luke chapter 15 with the prodigal son as he returns. Such an amazing idea. You know, the prodigal son, when he finally gets to rock bottom, he finally is convinced that the life that he has chosen was a mistake. And he, in his mind, he just thinks, well, maybe my father will take me back as a servant. You know, his servants do better than what I'm experiencing right now in this, this pigsty. And remember, he, he quotes and re rehearses for himself a little speech. You know, Father, I've sinned against you and against the heaven, and, and would you take me back as a servant? And remember, he, he's trudging back, and the Father sees him from a long way off because the Father has been looking out for him and expectantly hoping and waiting for his son to return. And when he sees his son, he runs out to him. And when he gets to his son, his son begins his prepared speech. Father, I have sinned against you and against heaven. And the father cuts him off. That's all I need to hear. And then he turns to his servants and he says, get him a ring, get him some sandals, and get him a robe. He is not doing the perp walk back into town. He is coming in as my son. There's no probationary period there's no like, oh, you know, it kind of makes sense. This whole idea of you be a servant for a while, then maybe with time, work your way up through the ranks. You can pay off all that debt, especially the debt that you owe your older brother now that I've given you his ring and his robe and his sandals. Makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? But the father's like, I love you and all I want. I don't care about any of that stuff. What I care about is you. Draw near with confidence to a father, to a God who loves you. Lost my place in the script text here. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And the second thing we need to let us hold fast, the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Hold on to it. He promised these, these things. He is faithful to fulfill them. Draw near and then hold on to what you believe. Hold on to it. And then finally, verse 24, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. In other words, Christian, he has called you now as his son, as his daughter, as the one that he has perfected and who he is sanctifying to now start sharing his love with the family of God. And I love how he puts it. He says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And I, this always, I always think of this as like kind of the opposite of that bumper sticker, you know, the bumper sticker that says practice random acts of kindness. This is kind of the opposite of that. He's saying, don't be random about it. No, like actually plan it. Be intentional. But he's like, hmm, how can I get hang to love more and to follow God more. I'm going to be intentional about that. You know, the, the people in my small group, 
How can I help them to love God more and to follow him and to do what he wants? I'm not just going to do that randomly, although I think random is good. <laughs> There's opportunities to practice random acts of kindness. That's good. But he's saying, no, let's think about this. And let's think about it in such a way that it actually provokes them. You know, rather than, you know, we know how we can provoke other people to anger. This is like this idea of I'm going to consider how I can stir one another up to respond with love and good deeds. Not because I need to prove myself to be a good Christian, because of what God has done for me. You know, since we have confidence, therefore, God has given all this to us. We have this opportunity now to spread that love to one another. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And that, that's the return of Jesus. When, when he will return, not as a servant, but as a king. And as we see that day possibly drawing near and who knows when, that should be a motivator to, guys, we, we don't, we can't be, I don't want us to be legalistic about being together, but this needs to be at the top of your priority list, the family of God, the top of your priority list. Get into that small group and be faithful to it, faithful in every way, not, not just faithful and I show up when it's time, but I'm, I'm thinking about those people and I'm, I'm praying for those people and I'm reaching out and being intentional about maybe having coffee or having them over for dinner or getting, you know, all those kinds of things to lean into that relationship in your life because of what he has done for you. Don't neglect that as some are in the habit of doing because this is the life. This is what he's called us to. This is why, jumping back, to verse 6, this is why a body was prepared for Jesus. That body, that little guy, newborn, prepared to do the will of God that we couldn't do so that we can draw near, so that we can remain, so that we can stir one another up in love and good deeds. Does that make sense? I mean, that, that's what he's called you to, Christian. Let's live that out. This is not a, a life that we've just kind of added on to Sundays. You know, here at the, you know, Catherine Johnson Middle School, we do this on Sunday mornings. Small groups, if I can, I'll be there. No, th this is the life that God's called me to because that baby came for me to be the sacrifice, the greatest act in cosmic history of love was that sacrifice that he gave for us. So we're going to be, I'm going to close in prayer here. And I, I understand that Hang is going to lead us in, in um, communion. We are remembering that his body was prepared for us, that his blood sprinkled us covered us so that we can enter into past the curtain that's been ripped open to be with him. Heavenly Father, God, Jesus, we just thank you so much for your incredible gift of love. God, while we were yet sinners, you died for us. 
Father, it's hard for us to imagine laying our lives down for, for a friend. It is impossible for me to imagine laying my life down for an enemy, for somebody who's actively hated me. But Father, you loved us that much. And Father, I pray that you would just, this, this season, to help us to just rest in your love, in the confidence of who you are, in the confidence in who you've made us and declared us to be. You have promised, Lord, that you have promised, Father, that you have perfected us through that sacrifice, and you are actively sanctifying, finishing the work that you, in our lives that you promised you would do. We give you the glory, we give you the praise, and in Jesus' name we pray, amen.